Coming up next, the sick power games of a girl and the weirdos in her life. Welcome to the Booketing. My name is Nathan Iverson. I am your humble and obedient host. Joining you for, if this is your first time, then I'd like to welcome you to the Booketing, a Christian literature podcast. Of course, we don't mean left behind. We don't mean Christian literature, do we, Brandon? We don't mean books published by Tyndale House or Crossway. We mean literature Zondervan. in general. What's that? Zondervan. Zondervan, yes. We mean literature in general as Read through the eyes of a Christian. Read through the eyes of Christians. Specifically, three Christians. Me. Specifically, our eyes. Our eyes, Six yes. eyes. Six eyes. Sometimes ears. Some of us do audiobooks occasionally. Occasionally. Now, let me describe those eyes. You've got olive-colored. Hazel. Uh, right. Hazel. Is it hazel? Yeah. They are hazel. Uh, you've got black, piercing eyes set back in the skull. Yes. Whose skull? Brandon Chastine's the scholar who's a baller of reading, PhD, ABD. He brings the intellect hmm. to our podcast. And he's leaving. <laughs> oh, he's throwing, he's throwing away his gum. Now, wearing a very fine pair of tortoise shell glasses. Indeed. Over his eyes, the aforementioned eyes, we've got the man that brings the heart to the podcast and also the pastoral wisdom. Pastoral, you say? Do I mean like fields with grass? Well, of course you do. <laughs> Romantic sweeping vistas. Sorry, I just, yep, I, just definitely. A, I just got an image of us as Scarecrow, Tin Man, and Lion. <laughs> <laughs> nope. I mean pastoral like he's a pastor. Specifically, Pastor Jacob Menzel, the pastor who's a master of reading. What's up? How you doing, Jake? Good. Excited to talk about the first really exciting book that we've done ever. That's um, not true. That's a I wild would, exaggeration. I would, I would, yeah, contradict that statement. I'm ready to talk about the book that reminded me that I like reading. I I can get behind that statement myself. And yes. also may or may not be trash. Yes, I could also get behind that statement. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I Yes, I'm ready to talk about this book. I enjoyed almost every minute of reading it. It's a large book. Mm-hmm. I flew through it Yeah, and had fun, and it may or may not also be trash. Well, the cumulative effect is questionable at best. Indeed. Maybe answerable with A+, plus, but maybe answerable with F-. minus. We're going to have to talk about it. I think we should talk no about it. I think we should it. do several podcasts. I think we should, too. Uh, this is going to be we're, this is gonna be fun. We're going to have uh, Danny on, our resident token female. Old dubstep herself. Old dubstep herself. We're going to have her on in a few episodes. Mm. I think we're going to do a couple episodes i don't know how many we're, we're gonna do some just the boys nice but then we're gonna have danny on so she can give her unique perspective and that should be interesting because being a woman i could see danny having a different perspective i could see her thinking that men actually act like mr rochester well i don't want to deny that they act that way i just want to no, deny just... that they deserve to be the heroes of a romance novel like this one you know there's just a lot of other things that I'm, I'm getting married right now, you guys, right? Like, yeah. I've got a fiance. I love her mm-hmm. a lot. I think she's fantastic. I think she's beautiful. I like her personality. Everything about her I like. But I do not spend every waking moment of every day mooning over her 
and feeling like I'm going to die. You should probably repent and be more like Mr. Rochester. I probably should be more like Mr. Rochester. I'm thinking that's the lesson. Or more like St. John, um, which is how he was pronounced in the audiobook, by the way. St. John. Oh, St. John. Yeah, old St. John. <laughs> All right, Brandon, we'll talk about old St. John. That's what I'm going to call him this whole time. I mean, I'm probably going to call him Sinjin because I'm used to Sinjin, but it's okay. We, can, we have all types. That's so. how they pronounced him? <laughs> all right, guys, let's get into it. Let's, let's stop wasting time, Brandon. All Nathan. I wanted to do was talk about... So... Spirit Ains and Days Gone By. Hey, there we go. The, now we're back on track. Now we're back on track. That's always a good way to reorient. All right, what happens next is what's that sound? Oh, no, it's the mysterious phantom showing up. <laughs> no. It's Mr. Rochester calling <laughs> to me across the heath. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jane, Jane. No, no, no. That was the sound of Brandon Chastain, the contextual text, and he's firing off his pistols. If people don't know this, <laughs> if people don't know this, segment from our show this is the segment where brandon he's from texas he's going to provide some much needed context for this work yeehaw so with a with a hail and hearty yeehaw as he yeehaw. just did well i was telling nathan that we've actually provided context for this book through quite a few of the other episodes we've done mm-hmm. um in particular the episode on mary shelley and then have we done oh well the episodes on dickens and surely the episodes on austin Episodes on Austin, and also the episodes on what are some of the Gothic literature we've done? Well, Dracula, Dracula. which I probably touched on. That's where we did most with the Gothic. Yeah. And so all those elements come into play with this novel. And so to get us started, a bit of bio, but also I I think it's interesting to just put her into literary context. And she's after the Romantics. She would have been writing, she was born after the end of Austin's career, just a couple of years after that. She was born in 1816. So she was after the Romantics and after Austen. So she, she was in the Victorian era. And you can see some of the Victorianism in the way she writes and in her high-mindedness. Mm-hmm. Um, there was in particular one word at the end of the novel she used when she was talking about Sanjin. What, what did you say he was? Sun, uh, we should just get this out of the way early. Sinjin Sinjin in my <laughs> audiobook is how yeah. they pronounce the guy that you might think, if you're a moron, is pronounced St. John. It's this word master spirit. She called him a master spirit. What philosopher used that word? Mm, Somebody from the era? Well, you would see the word master spirit come into vogue with guys like Nietzsche and stuff Mm -hmm. later on, guys who had like the Ubermensch mentality. There were some some German philosophers like... uh, If you search master spirit in quotes, top result is what are master spirits in Super Smash Brothers Ultimate? Oh. And the second top result is Super Smash Brothers Ultimate, all master spirits and how to unlock... Well, that must be the secret right there. <laughs> They're all Smash Brothers, all of them. Yeah. The whole first page. Yeah, what I'm thinking is it was the Phenomenology of Spirit by Hegel. <laughs> Anyways, it's- I prefer the... Smash Brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I was thinking of was the Phenomenology of Spirit by Friedrich von Hegel. Anyways, this would have been a, the period of philosophy where you were moving towards what would become like transcendental philosophy in America with Emerson and those guys, mm-hmm. with the transcendental movement, which- Transcendental, incidentally, mm-hmm. would be happening around the same time that she would be writing. And it was this fierce move towards individualism and towards expressing yourself in this uh, spiritualism that you that was quasi-Christian, but was really mm-hmm. just about your ability to come in contact with the great high spirit. High spirits, quasi-transcendentals, 
individualism and expressing yourself individualistically. Brandon, I don't see what this has to do with the novel. You don't see any of this in no. Jane Eyre. Oh, this is just a simple love story. Yeah. Yeah, well. I mean, you get hints of this early on in the book with Helen Burns, mm-hmm. with the way that she talks about spirituality. Yeah. And how she was just wants to be of like one concourse with this great mind that imbues everything, right? And sort of in this, these quasi visions that she gets of this higher reality. You had this with the romantic poet. So Keats had his famous expression of negative capability where you would try and through forgetting yourself and through just intense emotion, have the ability to just completely forget yourself and become one with like the transcendental. Mm-hmm. And so, and that was the big word. And that's why in America, when they, when those philosophers would take over, it would be the transcendental movement. It was how can you transcend yourself through individualism, through self-reliance, all these things to get at some higher truth. And the master spirit, and from what I remember of Hegel, and there was there was a famous playwright that wrote The Robbers. Who wrote The Robbers? Look that up. Yeah, that's the name I was trying Schiller. to remember. Schiller. Mm-hmm. So he was an early proponent of this. And then you'd have guys like Faust and, by Goethe, and, and they would all be about the Sturm und Drang, and this would be in the in the intellectual environment of England at the time, the the intense emotion that could lead you to truth, right? And so this would then seep over into England with the Romantics. You would have this counter movement, which we talked about in depth with Mary Shelley, that would be very antithetical to everything that Jane Austen, and even to an extent, nobody can see my hand movements on the, but I have very <laughs> animated <laughs> hand movements right now. To a large extent, his hands are telling us right now. Folks. Austin is on the right of me. Mm-hmm. Mary Shelley and her crew are on the left of me mm-hmm. with the master spirits. And then you have quiet Austin in her writing room. And so you have to understand the intellectual environment that is happening at, the, at this time in England, but that kind of preceded Charlotte Bronte to an extent. This all was happening in the early 1800s. Hegel would have been early 1800s. Goethe wrote Faust, late mm-hmm. 1700s, right? So this was already there. Mary Wollstonecroft had already fought her battles. The Romantics had already had their licentious day in the sun. So Charlotte Bronte was inheriting this sort of mentality. Mm. All right. So there's... <laughs> I'm sorry. I really enjoyed the phrase, licentious day in the sun. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I think that should be the name of your autobiography. <laughs> A licentious day in the sun. sun the Brandon Chastain story. Oh, boy. So... It's been days and days gone by. I almost missed it. I know. Thank I you was for about pausing. to move on. Thank you for pausing. We're here then in the 1816s, in the Victorian era now, but we still have these thoughts, this this ideology that is formed. And Charlotte Bronte is going to be squarely in this form of ideology. She's not going to be just your happy theatrical storyteller like Dickens, who was her contemporary, oddly enough. Hmm. Or even Mark Twain was her contemporary as well. That's interesting. You had a lot of the, like Hawthorne would have been writing at the same time. All the great American uh, Melville with Moby Dick would have been writing pretty much around the same era. So a lot of great things were happening in literature at this period all over the world. Tolstoy was coming. (laughs) He was just around the corner. Tolstoy's coming. (laughs) And boy, is he going to teach all of them how to write. Yeah, if only. If only. So then if we just go by this chronology that is handily here in front of me. Mm -hmm. She was born in 1816. Um, She was the third child of Patrick and Maria uh, Bronte. Born at Thornton, Yorkshire. Thornton, eh? Thornton. Interesting. Yes. Dun, dun, dun. Omens. (laughs) (laughs) Jane. Jane. (laughs) Oldest surviving of three sisters. They had a younger sister, or they had an older sister named Maria, but she died while they were young. They had a brother, Branwell, 
Maria was the first to die. She died of tuberculosis. And then Branwell would also die of tuberculosis later on, but he would survive into their early adulthood. Where was this? Their father was a curate, and the name of the curacy, the house that they lived in, was, where was it? Haworth. And it was a very happy home for them. In a way, similar to what we think of with Jane Austen's mm -hmm. early childhood. There was a lot of um, intellectual exploration. <laughs> I hate that word. <laughs> um, <laughs> what's a better way to put it? A lot of... Uh, Education. They were educated well. <laughs> there we go. And like their brother, for example, he got a, boy, uh, a, a box of toy soldiers and they used that to write a play. They were writing stories. They were... Was Branwell's soldiers? Yeah. And so... But her other sisters were Emily mm -hmm. and... Emily wrote Wuthering Heights. Mm -hmm. Who's the other one? Anna. Anne. Anne. And she did something too, right? Yes, she was also a writer. All three of these would become famous writers in their own right. Charlotte and Emily, arguably more famous than Anne. <laughs> but arguably, huh? Arguably, <laughs> yeah. One could argue. They would write novels that would shape English literature. Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights. I really don't know if either of Charlotte's other works can, can be considered that groundbreaking. You have Villette, you have The Master, but... Yeah, I know some people like them, but I've never read them or talked to anyone who I've has. I've read Villette, think. but... Have you? Okay. Yeah. How'd you manage to read Villette and not read Jane Eyre? Who knows? It's just the travails of a PhD. I guess. Yeah, I had to read it for a class once. Hmm. So, I mean, really, that's... Pretty she had, she had a. It's a strange biography because she had a very quiet life. They grew up in Haworth together in around the early 1840s. So, she was born in 1816. The early 1840s, using some money from a, an aunt, a fairly wealthy aunt, they would go to Brussels, where, <laughs> where they would be. A, they were a governess in a small French school, and this French school was overseen by an intellectual family that had been influential in some of the Belgian revolutions and stuff. And he, and especially the husband, was kind of the superstar intellectual in the school. He taught rhetoric, but he was ugly. Mm. Bit of a dark character, mm. prone to fits of rage and anger, mm. but then can also be witty and charming and charismatic. And guess mm. what young Charlotte did? Mm. She, she fell in love with him, as best we can tell. With her letters and stuff, we, if you read some of her letters, it's, she was always obsessed and infatuated with this man talking about him. It's pretty clear that he is an early influence, or he is an influence for Mr. Rochester. Mm. Now, this man's wife did not take very kindly. She was the madam of the school. She was the headmistress. She did not take very kindly to this young English woman falling in love with her husband. And so at was, some was point, she a mad Creole? She wasn't a mad Creole. Lady she was actually a fairly friendly, charismatic woman in her own right. You know, you get these, what was that one with uh, Francis Schaefer, that school he started? Oh, what is Labrie. that? Place? What is it's it? Kind of, yeah, it kind of sounded like that sort of yeah, place where you would come in, you could be a governess. And so Charlotte would teach English. She Later, she would teach English at this school. They so actually, this had been in kind of a progressive school for its time? Yeah, a bit. But they went there and they would, and eventually when their aunt died, they had to go back to England. Emily was happily to, happy to go back because she didn't want to be there anyways because Emily was kind of a recluse. And if you've ever read Wuthering Heights, that should not surprise you at all. Mm -hmm. Wuthering Heights is a very strange and dark novel. Compared to Jane Eyre, even though Jane Eyre in its own right is a very strange and dark novel too. But Wuthering Heights is the emo to Jane Eyre's not emo. <laughs> what would Jane Eyre be? I think we have to stop and figure this out. If Wuthering Heights is emo, <clears throat> what does that make Jane Eyre? Fantasy metal? Yeah, fantasy metal. It's like, <laughs> no, Jane Eyre is like pop emo and... 
and Wuthering Heights is like emo for people that actually like emo. Yeah. Like actual emo kids that aren't like posers listen yeah, to Wuthering Heights. Yeah, it's like Jane Eyre's Dashboard Confessional and then Wuthering Heights is some band that I've never heard of because right. I don't care about emo. You don't care about emo. There we go. So if you out there know who they would be, tweet at us. Yep. <laughs> Send a self-addressed post card to Brandon Chastain. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Figure out where I live and... Mm-hmm. Send it there. So eventually, though, Charlotte would come back to the school. We don't know a whole lot of the history, but like he ended up taking her under his wing. He gave her like a piece of Napoleon's coffin. This Rochester guy? Yeah. Give her a piece and of Napoleon's coffin. As a gift. Brandon, nobody's ever given me a piece of Napoleon's coffin. I'm sorry if I ever come across a piece of Napoleon's coffin, I will give it to you. I appreciate that. It was during one of the long summer breaks here when the family was away and she was there and she was isolated that she began to write in these stories that she. The uh, lessons she had learned as a child, the instincts that she had shown as a child towards storytelling and all this, she she began to write some stories, and it would be for, she, over this period she wrote what was her first novel, but then also in the margins she wrote of this house, this old ugly house above a river in England, old manor house mm. that had fallen into disrepair and was full of like uh, this memory of some story, but nobody really missed the house. And that was the first instance we get of what would later become. Thornwell. Yeah. Thornwell, that's right. Thornwell. But that would be the first instance we would get of Jane Eyre, would be in the margins of this other story that she was writing. <laughs> and she even said that one, she liked to be telling multiple stories at once. So she was always telling many stories at one time. She was also a poet. She wrote some poems and sent them to this, uh, one of the famous poets at the time was Southey, Robert Southey. And he wrote her back saying, really, it's not a woman's place to be taken up with literary concerns. Ouch. <laughs> well, And apparently, uh, that's actually in the front of this introduction I have here. We can actually read it. Yeah, she sent her early poems to the poet laureate Robert Southey. He wrote back to tell her, literature cannot be the business of a woman's life. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, in the evenings I do think, but I never trouble anyone else with my thoughts. I trust I shall never more feel ambitious to see my name in print. If the wish should rise, I'll look at Southey's letter and suppress it. So she actually felt like, oh, well, I guess Southie's got a point. Yeah, and so she was going to suppress it, but then she went off to school at this progressive Brussels school and decided, well, maybe I'll be a writer after all. And so she gets her first novel published, moderate acclaim. Then she gets Jane Eyre published in 1847. You know, the rest is history. She she changes English letters. <laughs> it was an immediately sweeping success? Is that what No, it's not an immediate sweeping success. It wasn't that, I don't believe it was that huge. In some of the notes in my book, it talked about a lot of the negative press that the book got. Yeah. Well, and we will talk about that here in a minute because the book itself is about, but that'll be when we kind of get to the gothic elements of it and what she's doing with that. There was a lot of negative press. And actually, you know, if you look at history, negative press often leads to a book being quite popular. Mm-hmm. Because if it's negative for the reasons that this book was negative, people are going to want to read it. And one of the reasons this book got negative press was because of the the sexual stuff, right? the desire that was in every page. People thought that that was a bit much. Yeah. So did you have some of these reviews that you thought were worth reading? So the quarterly review said, we do not hesitate to say that the tone of mind and thought which has overthrown authority and violated every code, human and divine, abroad, and fostered chartism, whatever that is, and rebellion at home is the same which has also written Jane Eyre. Every page burns with moral Jacobinism, the Christian remembrancer. Quote, a proud and perpetual assertion of the rights of man and ungodly discontent. Elizabeth Rigby, Review of Vanity Fair and Jane Eyre. 
So yeah, this and then this commenter says the threatening tone of this manifesto, speaking of chapter 12, how it begins, placing women's rebellious feelings within the larger context of social unease in 1840s Britain affronted conservative reviewers. Yeah. So it was a bit of a scandal. And her first novel, The Professor, didn't do quite as well. I think I called it The Master earlier. Mm -hmm. I think that was the early transcript of it was called The Master. So when it was published, it was The Professor. But Jane Eyre was a commercial success pretty early on particularly because of these sort of conservative debates that surrounded the feminism of it and this overt sexuality of the book that even though it seems tame to us, to the Victorians, who are notorious for not being the most overt pro- progressive people in the world, <laughs> yeah. it was kind of scandalous. But then there was also this other fact that the author wrote under a pseudonym. And I think that this is something that most people don't realize about the Brontes, is that when they originally published their novels, the sisters did not write them under the name Bronte. Was it Kerr, is, Are they Kerr, Bell, and yeah. Ives or something like yeah. that? So when Jane Eyre came out, it was written by a Kerr or Bell. And so one of the debates surrounding the book was, well, was this written by a man or was this written by a woman? You had some uh, people like criticizing her portrayal of Lady Ingram, saying that there was something that happened with like the way that she placed the table. Mm-hmm. That person said, well, a woman would have never made that mistake. So this must have been written by a man. No, oh, any idiot would know this is written. The cattiness with which she portrays some of the females and the weird, crazy wish fulfillment with which she yeah. portrays the men. This is definitely written by a woman. So yeah, Curabelle, then quickly following on this, you had Wuthering Heights come out. And that was by her sister, Emily. And she published under Ellis Bell. So even more speculation. Who are these Bells? And then after that, you had Agnes Gray which was by the sister Anne, Acton Bell, and then all three sisters together in fairly short succession became well-known authors. And then by 1848, both Emily and Anne were dead. (laughs) (laughs) It's like something that would happen in one of their novels. Yeah. This is a strange biography, like I said, because really the highlights of Charlotte's life were a fairly happy childhood at their father's curacy, where they had the liveliness of theatrical performances. They would write poetry together. Um, They had their brother who was apparently charming and fun when he was young, but as he got older, he became addicted to opium and kind of became a reprobate. And then he died of tuberculosis as well. And so, and then he had Maria who died of tuberculosis. They become fairly successful authors, very successful authors in the case of Emily and Charlotte. And then immediately Emily dies of tuberculosis and then Anne dies of tuberculosis. And that leaves Charlotte alone. And Eventually, she gets married about six years later to one of her father's friends, and then nine months later, she dies of what we think were pregnancy complications. Hmm. And so a fairly short life, she died at 39, but she managed to write what is arguably one of the most famous works of literature. I mean, it's had many film adaptations. Most people know the story of Jane Eyre. Sure. Yeah, it's a short bio. So it is important to know that... I don't, she never reached, she never, she probably didn't actually live long enough to reach the levels of fame that Dickens had. I mean, Dickens was a legitimate superstar, but I don't even think she really reached the heights of fame that like a George Eliot would have had, for example. Right. But she was respected and she was well known and Jane Eyre caused a bit of a scandal and people admired the story. They thought that it was a good novel and through traditions of the novels at the time. And if you want to, you can go and read some of these reviews. They're fascinating to see the debates that surrounded Jane Eyre. And now, why did the debates around Jane Eyre? Well, we talked about the sort of philosophical, ideological background to the book. We've also in the past talked about the sort of 
literary influences, but let's just kind of recap those. This book is obviously in the tradition of the English novel at the time, as Lady Austen firmly founded it, and others following in her footsteps and in that tradition would continue to grow it and expand it. And that's, it's a books about class and power, about how does class and station affect your ability to have love, who you can marry, who you can't marry, and how does that affect the human drama. And that kind of, if you really want to encapsulate what the English twist on the novel is, that is the English twist on the novel. I mean, even Dickens, with Great Expectations, Bleak House, all these stories. Esther Summerson's narrative really is a narrative about who can she be, mm-hmm. right? And so the Brits are just obsessed. Even think about Ishiguro with Remains of the Day. Sure. He's still following in that tradition. That is the British novel, is thinking about those sorts of questions. And obviously that's in Jane Eyre. Right? That's the big question until finally she, instead of the man, she comes into her fortune with her 20000 that she gets from her Uncle John, who we never meet. Mm-hmm. But the question of how does your station limit who you are and who you can be? That's the English novel, very different than the American novel, if you think about it. And maybe one day we'll get a chance. We really haven't done too many of the great American novels yet, have we? And so you had the proponents of this, the who, would be, who actually were friends of Charlotte Bronte. So the book, when it was first published, was published in three parts. And that should be familiar to anyone who's listened to our Dickens episodes, but novels at the time were often serialized. And so this was published in three parts, but then when it was published again, because it got a second publication, because it was so successful, she dedicated it to, you remember who? William William McPee Thackeray, who was a good friend of hers and an admirer of her work as well. William Vanity Fair Thackeray. Yeah, and one day we'll, sure we'll read Vanity Fair. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, But he was Dickens' rival. It's basically, if you want to think, who, if you want to know who Thackeray was, he was Dickens' fiercest rival outside of Wilkie Collins. So, and Vanity Fair is great. But they would have been, oh, and um, Gaskell was her other friend. Elizabeth Gaskell. Yeah, who wrote North and South. And Elizabeth Gaskell and Thackeray, they were proponents and masters of this version of the English novel. So you have that, that influence on Jane Eyre. But then sort of the underbelly, the seedy side of it, you have the Gothic romance. Mm-hmm. The Gothic romance was heavily influenced by some of the art that would come out of that sort of storm und drang that we talked about with the German philosophical influences. Mm-hmm. This tendency towards fierce individualism and pride and self-reliance. Mm-hmm. What that would lead to would be these moody set pieces that were just about some heroine who would be thrown into a situation that was dangerous and where her love interest was also maybe dangerous, but that would maybe be rectified in the end and maybe end in Marriage, that would be the romantic aspect to it. The Gothic element would add a house, right? often a, a large house, a manor house that was dangerous and large and, and frightening. And you have these elements in Jane Eyre from the very beginning with the red room, right? That she's put into this room as a child mm-hmm. and where she thinks that there might be a ghost that's coming in. Yeah, I've read some, back in my emo days, I read some Gothic novels. I don't remember what it was. So Anne Radcliffe, Matthew Lewis, I don't know, Castle of Ontario, that kind of stuff. And yeah. what I would say is it's kind of the same thing. You just have to remove three-dimensional characters and you have to remove any real agency from the female. So if you just imagine Jane as a really passive young ingenue that just kind of is thrown upon the world and ends up in the clutches of a monstrous relative or other, you know, nobleman in a mysterious castle and there's clanking chains and forbidden rooms and all that kind of stuff. That's that's this is like the psychologically real, much more well developed, interesting, three dimensional version of a pretty cheesy 
Yeah, genre. and the vampire story came out of this sort of, or at least Bram Stoker's take on it did. Sure. There would be ghosts and there would be these sorts of things in the gothic romance that you don't necessarily get in Jane Eyre until you get to some of the weirdness that happens towards the end of the book with her hearing his voice somehow from miles and miles away. I'd say Jane Eyre is actually, there are famous gothic novels that do have, you know, the strain of really romantic, weird supernaturalism, but a lot of them, like Anne Radcliffe, it's all introduced, the clanking chains, but then it's all explained away Scooby-Doo style. Jane Eyre is actually a little bit more has more spiritualism yeah. and more weirdness than a lot of the classic Gothic novels actually do. Yeah, and she tries to explain away most of it. So the voice that she hears turns out to just be Bertha, the crazy wife. Right. What else? Oh, the gypsy's not actually a gypsy. It's just Mr. Rochester in disguise. Yeah, but then she takes that weird left turn at the end with the, yeah. the telepathy. Yes, but she does do that. Right. <laughs> so there's some weirdness in this book, and but this is all from this Gothic In all influence. the dreams. Yeah, and all the dreams. And I mean, she basically foresees what's going to happen to her Edward, doesn't she? Yeah, I mean, she sees the place in ruins and burning. And she also, she has a couple of pretentious dreams and has this whole thing about dreaming of children and why that's bad and how that pretends something. And yeah, yeah, I think she really wants to have her cake and eat it too and play with these themes without really committing. And I think she actually does a pretty good job of, I would say, we'll talk about it, I suppose, but. I think she does a good job of introducing the supernatural without committing to it. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> I mean, but I don't know whether that's a worthy goal, but insofar as it is, she pulls it off, I'd say. Yeah, but inarguably, you have all the elements of a gothic in this novel. Yes. They're not as intense as you have in, for example, Wuthering Heights, where they're like escalated to 11. Mm. But this is definitely gothic in a, in a sense. And it's a romance in a sense, too. The other gothic element would be the character of Mr. Rochester. And so what the Gothic would add to the romance would be that the romantic interest would not only be Darcy and his moodiness, but he would also have a legitimately sinister wickedness that was possible to destroy you, mm-hmm. this wickedness, like a sin, um, uh, something that you shouldn't quite look at. Right. And obviously with Rochester, there's some gnarly stuff going on in his past. Well, then again, she wants to have her cake and eat it too. She wants yeah. to introduce this element and use it and let us experience the potency, but she doesn't actually want Rochester to be stuck with the, the moral agency. Like a, like a good old fashioned mustache twirling gothic villain would actually be just have an evil secret. And Rochester kind of does, but I, I, we'll get into it. I'll stop but analyzing you, Brandon. You have the gothic, you have the English, just traditional novel. And then you also have an element of the spiritual autobiography. In fact, this is called, in some instances, this is called Jane Eyre, an autobiography. Hmm. And what that is, is it shares in the sort of buildings roman, which that's just following the growth of a hero through his trials and tribulations that turn him into the hero that he is. And so this is Jane Eyre's, the mature Jane Eyre, looking back on her life and telling you how she got to this point. So there are portions of the book where she will this turn and address the reader, mm-hmm. or she'll then reflect on what she wished she had known at that point. Right. One of the famous examples is when she's talking to Mrs. Reed early on, she's like, well, I wish, it, I wish now that I could have back the way I treated her. But the spiritual autobiography is where you get into the elements of the book that, besides the gothic romance that did provide some scandal, spiritual autobiography where Charlotte Bronte is letting some of her philosophy come into Jane Eyre mm-hmm. and speak through Jane Eyre is where you get some of the controversial stuff, where she pulls out some of her Mary Wollstonecraft and puts it into the book. Now, to, rem- to remind people who Mary Wollstonecraft was, she was Mary Shelley's mother, 
and she was famous for writing her treatise on the rights of women, Mm -hmm. an early proto-feminist. And while Charlotte Bronte, what's interesting about the Bronte sisters is while they, so, well, I guess what's interesting in general about when we do these contexts is sometimes you'll have authors who are just wholeheartedly part of a movement and identify themselves with a movement. So Mary Shelley would have been that way. She saw herself as part of the romantic movement. And even though she might not have called herself a romantic, she was right there with Shelley. She was right there with Byron. They were in this world together where they were creating a very specific kind of art. And doing it intentionally. And doing it intentionally. Then you get other creators like Shakespeare didn't see himself as creating the Elizabethan drama. And he wasn't like leading Ben Jonson and these guys in this endeavor to create the Elizabethan drama as we see it today. And Dickens really wasn't like thinking of himself as the Victorian novelist. He was just a writer. And the Brontes were to an extent, that's what they were. They weren't a part of some bigger movement that was happening at the time. That said, Bronte still was political to an extent and saw herself as limited by her circumstances and was aware of how her situation in life, probably bitterness towards what she couldn't have with that professor that she wanted, limitations as to what it meant to be the daughter of a curate, all these things. And you can read her letters and stuff and see this sort of disappointment. We read one of her letters when we did our Austin context, right? We're comparing Austin's content meant with her life and station and the way that Austin would just playfully accept criticism and just let it sort of roll off her where it kind of riled up Charlotte Bronte and made her mad. Like, how dare you? This sort of fierce individualism did seep into her life and it came out in her letters and obviously it came out in this book. And you see it all over the place. Mm-hmm. The most famous example would be chapter 12. Yeah. But then also... It's just, just all over the place. We should remind people what happens in chapter 12. Well, chapter 12 is where she first meets Adele. And she talks about how she didn't really like Adele. Right. So what's the word? She chides the reader for assuming that they developed the sentimental relationship. And she's like, nah, it was nice, but nah. Which, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about this People chapter. People call it a manifesto, proto-feminist manifesto. Yeah. I mean, and to be fair, I agree with the what I agree with some of the things she says about how they sentimentalized children at the time. Sure. Yeah, I actually don't mind. In in and of itself, taken out of context, the context of her life, just accepting it as the character's thoughts, I don't actually mind that chapter all that much. But But you see it there, but then you also just, you see it in the fact that she's trying to mix Christian sentiment with this sort of heady, uh, world spirit, German philosophy that influenced the Romantics and all of that brand of elite art at the time. I think one of the points you see at clearest in this book is when Rochester finally looks at her watercolors and we get to see what she's been painting. Yeah. And boy, yeah. howdy, those paintings Some were weird. wacko stuff. Yeah. It's, it's like what you would expect. It's actually similar to what... So last context, we talked about the Pre-Raphaelites mm-hmm. and their sort of intense colors and weird motifs they would do. It's very similar to that. And it shouldn't be surprising because... One thing I haven't mentioned from their past, and I've actually saved to this point, is that one thing that they read a lot in their house was Byron and Shelley and the Romantics. They were very influential on her childhood. So even though she was not a part of the Romantic movement, she was heavily influenced by the Romantics and by their sort of individualism, by their sort of free spirit attitude, by their belief in the power of imagination Mm -hmm. to lead to truth. And I think that's important for Jane Eyre because I saw that all over the place with her insistence on dreams, her insistence on sort of speculative thought. The spiritual yearning that goes along with nature. Jane will often go and look across the scenery and be stirred by the 
yeah. dark moors or And or how this will somehow lead you to higher thought. Mm-hmm. And when she talks about this world spirit, the high spirit of Mr. St. John's, this is the sort of context you need to have in mind to make sense of it. And so then you get this young girl who's painting pictures like this. I found them. Yeah. You should read one. <laughs> well, there's the sinking ship with corpses, and then there's the one where the woman's bust is filling the sky, and then there's the one where there's an iceberg and a head growing out of the iceberg. Yeah, and so it's just these weird paintings that are reminiscent of the eerie sort of gothic Yeah, it's very sort of almost impressionist. Well, also, when, you, when you just read it like that, it makes me think of Dolly or something that's like how, that. That's what I yeah. pictured. I picture, I was picturing more like Dolly or... One of those guys. Or like, yeah. um, but what it reminds me of too is like um, Shelley's poem. watercolors. On, yeah. What's the Prometheus Unbound? Mm-hmm. You know, these sort of poems about great mythological figures. Child rolling to the dark tower came. And how through these big mythological figures, we can make sense of our large mythological beings and how we're trapped and confined in these small spaces. And so what's weird about Jane Eyre, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more, is that I feel like this book is warring with itself because at one point it seemed to me like a Victorian spin on Jane Austen. Right. But then it's Jane Austen with the weird romantic unease and dis- and anxiety and unrest in it. And what you end up getting is this weird novel that kind of is butting its own head. Yeah, that's a good way to put about it. I'm sure we so, will talk about that more. It really just to the fact that her and Rochester can't actually be they can, they can be completely happy because they're soulmates, but they, he has to pay a price first and he has to lose his eyesight and he has to be scarred like I don't know. That's weird. We'll talk about it. But yeah. what else you got to say? I think that's pretty much it. We should talk about the fact that sort of some of the metaphors and tropes that come out of Jane Eyre have been heavily influential in feminist theory. Really? Um, and in fact, people go back to our first episode ever and remember the flame war we started with someone who never is going to listen to us, Susan Gubar, an old professor from Indiana University mm-hmm. who is very, very famous in feminist circles. And she's famous because she wrote a book called, you know what it's called? I do not. The Mad Woman in the Attic. Ah, yes, yes, yes. And The Mad Woman in the Attic is famous because that essay postulates that what uh, Bertha actually represents is Jane Eyre's subconscious that could never really come to the surface. All the unfeminine things that she wants to express. Yeah, so Bertha was Jane's double, the dark secret where she was imprisoned all her hunger, rebellion, and rage. The parts that escaped to assault Mrs. Reed, but thereafter learned with role models like Miss Temple at Lowood to subdue and so gain acceptance. And that's what this whole novel is about, is this dual nature of women. Mm -hmm. Until finally, have you ever heard of the book? South Saragossa Sea? Yeah. The White Saragossa Sea? Yes, I have. That book is about, it's a retelling of Bertha's story to try and make us sympathetic to her so that we don't- It's from her point of view and Rochester's mistreating her and not- Yeah. And so she doesn't become that woman out of madness, but because- she is the other that's always kept on the fringes of society. And so Bertha in particular has been a mine of treasures mm-hmm. for feminist thinkers and post-colonial thinkers. Post-colonial thinkers are those who are always are saying that, you know, we shouldn't just read white male authors. We should be looking at all these other authors who have always been silenced and quieted. And they're the ones who are going to go into the libraries and pull out weird books that no one's ever thought to read, often because... They're bad. Right. (laughs) Suddenly we have to accept this random woman as part of the canon. Yeah. 
That's that's why people have to read the yellow wallpaper now. The yellow wallpaper is pretty good, isn't it? No, no, is it I not? Like, I don't like the. Yellow I remember wallpaper. it from childhood. But I had to read it. In junior <laughs> Maybe high it's or fine, Nathan. I no, don't. Know. I don't know. I, it's kind of creepy. Uh, <laughs> you do actually keep your wife in a room with yellow wallpaper where she's not allowed to get out, right? In the attic, yeah. locked up. Yeah, yeah. I think that's fair. Torture chamber has to have some purpose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm with the feminists on this one. I think birth is pretty problematic. <clears throat> she has. <laughs> It's <laughs> just a little little That's spoiler little... for next time. <laughs> but hey, she ends with her brains splattered all over the sidewalk. Yep, so. yep. A just dessert for a <laughs> problematic woman that tried to usurp her place in the attic. Who just so happened to be crazy. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what happens when you have to put up with the patriarchy. Yep. Drives you nuts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Got anything else for us, Brandon? No, that's it. All right, guys, let's do some donor shout outs and call it an episode. How are we going to do these donor shout outs? Why don't quickly you do the donor shout outs and Jake, you say a bird that this person reminds you of. Robert and Rhonda, <laughs> the lovebirds. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Condors. Nice. There the immortal Chelsea E. The immortal Chelsea E. Swan. Nathan, not me. Nathan, not Nathan. A duck. Crack. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy Beam and little Annie Oakley. Jimmy Beam and little Annie Oakley. Penguins. Lily of the Valley. Lily of the Valley. Uh, ostrich. Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds. Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds. Sparrows. The inscrutable Jenny Z. The inscrutable Jenny Z. Turtle doves. John and Jill, the lovebirds. John and Jill, the lovebirds. Robins. Keith Master. Keith Master. Blue Jay. David's Mighty Men Trucking. David's Mighty Men Trucking. The... The Albatross. The Guardians of Gahul. The Albatross. Uh, my beloved mother, Beth. Nathan's beloved mother, Beth. Parrot. Did I say Jane? No, I didn't. Jane and Katie who are cold and love cheese. Jane and Katie who are cold and love cheese. English swallows. Nice. The artful Anthony Dodger. Artful Anthony Dodger. African swallows. The dark hooded lord of death himself, Jeremy. The dark hooded lord of death himself, Jeremy. Toucan. The, <laughs> speaking of toucan, <laughs> two can get along better than one. Like the, me and the incandescent Meredith. The incandescent Meredith. Woodpecker. I don't know if I support that, Meredith, <laughs> if you're listening. <laughs> Jackie Jumpin' Joanna the Junebug. Jackie Jumpin' Joanna the Junebug. Hummingbird. I can see we're still trying to land on that one. <laughs> so I've never been able to land. I'm sorry, Joanna. I love you. I cannot come up with something good for you. I'll keep working out. I know I've come up with good ones previously and forgotten them. It's hard. Rockin' Ryan and Judo Judith. Rockin' Ryan and Judo Judith. Roadrunner. Danny the Dude. Danny the Dude. Finch. DJ Sammy D. D no, sorry. DJ Sammy G. DJ Sammy G. Bird of Paradise. Benny and Dana T. Benny and Dana T. Seagull. Eric and Catherine the Lovebirds. Eric and Catherine the Lovebirds. Peacock. Professor X and Lady X. Professor X and Lady X. And Quail. A- Oh, I'm sorry. What is it? Quail. Quail, of course. And Jake, I'm going to need a particularly good bird for our newest member of the donor shout out family, the ancient and venerable wizard of yore, Fletcher. The ancient and venerable wizard of yore, Fletcher. Cuckoo. <laughs> Cuckoo. Hey, welcome aboard, Fletcher. <laughs> Say hi to Fletcher, guys. Hey, Fletcher. What's up, Fletcher? Thanks for supporting us. Yeah, thank you, Fletcher. I love you, Fletcher. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good ending.
right. Thanks for listening, everybody. This is Nathan again. That's Brandon. That's Jake. And if you want to support this work and if you want to get a grid donor shout out, what you do is you go to patreon.com forward slash the booking. You sign up, pay at least $10. You'll get a donor shout out, pay less than $10. You can still get some cool stuff. Do that. Do it today. We'll be back next week. I don't know if Danny, the not dude, will be joining us next week or the week after or what, but she's going to get it, get into the mix here soon. And we'll be talking about yield. Uh, Jane Eyre in deciding whether it is awesome. Mm-hmm. Right, Brandon? Right, Nathan. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>